This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. But I think it's going to be run more like Fight Club. Because if you have them be the same guy, then you don't have to worry about who did what. And I think that twist ending, no one's ever going to be able to see. Anyways, welcome to the Save or Die podcast. Uh, Immortal edition this time around. My name is Crispy, returning here after a pretty long absence. And with me today is uh, our new co-host, Carl. Hi, everybody. So... Unfortunately, uh, you know, at the end of the last episode, uh, Glenn, James, and Tenkar uh, stepped down from the podcast. Um, but we're we're here. You know, Saber Die isn't going anywhere. Um, we're you know we're gonna keep continue, keep chugging along. Um, Vince approached me to kind of take over, so you know here we are. Um, I'm super excited. We got a lot of stuff in the works. I will say with. Uh, with me, I've been out of the old school game for a while. Uh, unlike Carl, who only plays basic D and D, basic expert D and D, uh, and the rule cyclopedia and things like that. And I think that's going to be a really good mix. Uh, for me, it's going to be a lot of rediscovering sort of my old school roots, and I'm really excited to have Carl with us to do that. Uh, Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you kind of got started with gaming? Absolutely. Uh, so my boxed D and D. Uh, the introduction to the game was actually a board game called Hero Quest, uh, which uh, has RPG elements uh, in it, but it's more of a board game. Uh, my dad was playing D and D at the time, and he bought us Hero Quest, and uh, we sat down, we played it for a little bit, and then my dad said, "Forgive this, we're playing D and D." So he invited his D and D friends over, and they showed us the game. Uh, we created a couple of characters um, using the uh, second edition rule set. But then uh, when my dad went out to get books of his own to play at home with us, uh, he was handed the rule cyclopedia. So that was the first D&D book we owned. So my introduction uh, uh, to D&D was a mixed bag, but landed at the rule cyclopedia where we started playing the game regularly. Okay. And it's... <laughs> I had forgotten for a second that you're also, like me, we're, we're kind of younger guys, uh, especially for the old school. Um, I'd forgotten for a second that you're, like, also young, and so I was like, this is back in the 70s. It's like, oh, how did your dad, like, your dad played D&D first? Uh, that didn't make sense. <laughs> my in dad's my head old enough to, to have uh, uh, been involved, but he actually uh, discovered D&D only a few years before I did. Okay. Um, uh, but... Uh, he he still plays to this day. My whole family plays the game. Actually, is that your? You mean your parents and like brothers and sisters, or like your actual like immediate? Your family. both of those are true. Huh. <laughs> so yes, um, my my dad and mom play. My family, um, uh, we were all homeschooled, hmm. and my parents would use uh, RPG role sets to teach us uh, history and reading and math because there is so many educational elements. Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons and other uh, role-playing games. Um, so we grew up with the game. 
And then uh, I've passed it along to my own children uh, and my wife plays uh, and, and, and it kind of happened that way. My sister got her husband playing and hmm. uh, my, my brother got his wife playing. So if you, if you, uh, if you marry into the family, it's, it's not long before we sit you down at the table and, and have you roll some dice. It just seems to be a, a sickness. That's really interesting. I, uh, I don't, I don't have a parallel for that. I tried to teach my little sister once, but she couldn't wrap her head around the idea that a game just continues. She, she's like, well, what if, what if this happens and we fail doing it? And I was like, well, then, then we, we do this. So like, oh, you got car- caught at the gates, but you know, uh, the guard is corrupt, so he'll accept a bribe to let you go. It's like, yeah, but then what if none of us can swim? We have to cross the river. She's very pessimistic. She's a very pessimistic <laughs> child. She didn't get like she didn't get the idea of anything can happen. I think in her head it was anything can go wrong, which sure that's a fun way to play the game. But uh, I don't know if she quite understood like you can do anything in this game and failure isn't the end. That's uh, funny because I kind of uh, had the same resistance from my wife when she learned that you don't actually ever win the game and she didn't understand the point of it. But it's uh, in hindsight, I've realized the best way to explain it is it's it's really a series of small victories. You're always winning, you know, yeah. uh, each quest is its own goalpost. And once you uh, once you take out that dungeon or take out uh, that bad guy or, or solve that problem, you have a victory and then you move on to the next victory. Uh, it's 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 a game where you're winning all the time, especially yeah. if you're having fun, because that's the only way to really win the game. Yeah. And you're winning all the time, but the game gets harder. Like, cool, I beat the Lich King and now I have a sweet sword that just lets me fight even stronger stuff. So now, you know, I was fighting skeletons. Now I'm going ahead and I'm fighting uh, uh, skeletons that are on fire. <laughs> I played a lot of video games as a kid. That's that's my measure for how things progress in a world. It's the same enemy, just palette swapped. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, modern correlation uh, between, between video ga- Explaining an RPG in terms of a video game where uh, when we look at the history of it, the the video game emulated the RPG. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really interesting because I think it's allowed a gateway for a lot of people who may have never sat down at a table and tried Dungeons and Dragons. It created those terms in a, in a more public lexicon than they have existed before. Yeah, I um I tried to explain RPGs to a friend a few years ago. She her her boyfriend, who I was also friends with, played second edition and like we, you know, we both bonded over our love of of RPGs and she just didn't get it. But she was a big video game person. She loved like Final Fantasy and things like that. And I was like, okay, like, who's your favorite character in Final Fantasy? And she's like this person. I go, imagine you are that person. And then instead of beating the game, you win. But then you get to do another entire game after that. And it. That's like the simplest way that I can explain it. Like you're this person in the world and you do these things, but it never ends unless you die. But even then, like that's a minor setback at best. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to uh, come back or revert that. Which actually brings us into our topic for today. So today we're actually kicking things off. Uh, We're going to continue kind of what James and and Eric and and Glenn were doing with the, uh, the class act. 
uh, series here. And today, we're going to be talking about clerics. After these messages, we'll be right back. Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. So the cleric to me is really interesting. I actually think the first thing I want to dive into, because as we were doing research for this, um, the most interesting thing I think we came across was the the history of the inception of the cleric and how they got their start as like a Van Helsing kind of character, as opposed to kind of what they ended up becoming, which was like more of a, I think they're more of a, a holy knight, like a like a crusader or a knight of the round table kind of thing. Um, some people see it. Differently. I agree. I think that's where the, the perception has, has, has come to with, uh, you know, anybody regarding the class. Um, uh, but it is interesting uh, from, from what we were able to find online. And uh, hopefully this is uh, very accurate information, but the, the original introduction of the cleric was as a vampire slayer. And that's what the class was called. And it went through some name changes before it became a cleric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was more of a, a monster hunter. And uh, it's all, it's all because <laughs> it's a playtest class. So there was kind of an escalating arms race with characters in the in the Arneson game at that time. And somebody had somebody's character who was I think they were the Lord of Blackmore, from what I had read originally. Um, they got turned into a vampire, who then became Sir Fang. And I guess like we could just kinda read the uh the the original telling of it. Um this comes from Mike Menard um, do you know where this was originally posted? This uh, this little piece of lore. I, I originally found it on RPG Net, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, it's referenced in a lot of blog posts. Uh, I think it would be a good idea to uh, link to those blog posts in the uh, show notes. Yeah, well, I will uh, definitely do that. Really here. collect the information well. Yeah, so the best kind of. Um, omnibus i guess of the information here would probably be from blackmoremistara.blogspot.com uh havard's blackmore uh blog here um so kind of reading an expert here from mike menard who was a player at the game but he wasn't the the person who had come up with the cleric uh he goes um i was there in chainmail there were wizards that functioned as artillery then there was dave arneson's first miniature slash role-playing campaign some players were good guys, and some players were bad guys, and Dave was there was the referee. One of the bad guys wanted to play a vampire. He was extremely smart and capable, and he, as he got more and more experience, he got tougher and tougher. This was fairly early, uh, this was the early 70s, so the model for the vampire was Christopher Lee in Hammer 4 films. No deep folklore. Well, at the time, nobody could touch Sir Fang. Yes, that was his name. And I think it's really funny because um, the last name of the person who was playing Sir Fang was Fant. And I believe he was originally Lord Fant. So that one letter change when he became. A yeah, vampire. you see that a lot in early D&D where they just kind of play with their own names. Yeah, to get everyone, their, their everyone character name. listed in this blog, they were, you know, Sir, Sir, um, Sir Fant and 
like you know um let me see here if i can find this do 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 Oh goodness gracious! I know the original character's last name was was he was you know Sir last name here Sir Carr or like Father Carr or something like that. Um, but yes, I think that was the first cleric was Carr. Yeah. Um, Do you see it on here? Dave Fant mm-hmm. was the player. Mm. Uh, this is from the Thank You Sir. Uh, Fang blog uh, post <laughs> from Shams Grogan blog. Okay, which is also fantastic. Um, and uh, I don't see where they mention his name before he became a vampire, though. Yeah, I I do know that he was the the Lord of Blackmore at the time when he got turned into a. A vampire. It's really interesting to me because um, Mike Carr, actually, in a quote from him, he really downplays his involvement with it. Um, in an expert same from, from Havard's Blackmore blog, he says, It's true that I did take on uh, take part in the original Blackmore campaign and did play the role of a priest, participating in a few dungeons and overland expeditions. I also recall having the ability to cast one or two healing spells and having the ability to help, um, I'm sorry, the ability to heal minor wounds. But in retrospect, it's obvious my character was low level and not particularly impressive. So he really like downplays it. But to hear Mike Menard say it, he's like, no, like this is this was our uh, dirty bomb to destroy Sir Fang. Right. And uh I think what's really interesting about Sir Fang and the creation of the cleric, uh, compared to other classes uh, in Dungeons & Dragons that kind of spring from fantasy literature, uh, with rangers emulating Strider and the elf kind of emulating Elric and wizards emulating Gandalf and uh, other other wizards in literature and, and their need of a thief class because there are so many thieves in literature. Dungeons and Dragons created the cleric. Yeah, the priest. The other as, way around. As it was called in the, the playtest. Um, and it was, it was based off of Van Helsing, which <clears throat> it really did kind of retain. Um, I think it being the priest is sort of where the the sort of holy warrior thing came in, and and apparently that was Gary's idea. Actually, was to um... for, yes, from from what I've read, uh, it originally was called just Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. They made a Vampire Slayer class, and the Vampire Slayer had some abilities that kind of model the cleric, had some healing, could turn undead, but didn't have a spell list. Um, and then it got renamed Priest, and then. Gary was the one who implemented the the lack of edged weapons, uh, uh, the the limitation of the class compared to uh, the fighting the fighter class. Um, so I think that's interesting because all of these components kind of fell in place. We don't have a literary reference for everything the cleric does, but we have bits and pieces for place. The edged weapons uh, restriction comes from a couple of different places. Uh, there's the, and I could be saying this completely wrong, Boyo Tapestry, it's B-E-Y-E-U-X 
tapestry and we will have that in the show notes as well Mm -hmm. and then there's a book called the song of roland uh who has uh, a character in it bishop turpin uh which is uh uh, also going to be in the show notes but that seems to be gary's primary inspiration for the way the class the direction it took yeah, yeah, I believe the quote is uh, from Archbishop Turpin is the that's the live by the sword, die by the sword, like true. Right. Yes. Which is very interesting. <laughs> I do kind of want to jump into this with with clerics. And I mean, we can touch on this a little bit later, but how much of a stickler are you on that with the uh, the no edged weapons? I think um, in in a lot of ways. Uh, it doesn't make any sense because especially the the thing I hear repeated over and over again is um, that they're not allowed to draw blood. And and the idea that you can bludgeon someone to death with a mace without drawing blood uh, is just clearly not true. Yes. Uh, now that's go ahead. Oh, I said, yes, I, I'm a, I'm agreeing with you. <laughs> Uh, but that's not saying that there's not stuff in in dogma that doesn't make sense. But um, what I do in my games, just in my home games, to try to make that make more sense um, is I view the cleric as the primary function being to fight undead. Mm-hmm. And undead's foot soldier being the skeleton, then of course the cleric's primary weapon is the mace because his primary enemy uh, isn't affected as as drastically by swords. Yeah, and when you had wrote, written that in the show notes, I really, really like that idea where you kind of do take them back to their Van Helsing roots, where they are, you know, it's not a, a knight in chainmail armor with a shield and a mace. It's it's a Van Helsing, you know, or, you know, he's got the, the wide-rimmed hat and the duster and, <laughs> you know, a mace that... When you hit people, it sprinkles holy water out of it. I, I, I really like that. With me, with the uh, the no-edged weapons thing, I don't agree with it, but when I am playing um, classic D&D, I do stick to it. I don't know why. It's just such... It's one of those little quirks that I think adds just a little bit of flavor. Of course, you know, I everyone has seen enough murder she wrote to know that if you hit somebody in the back of the head with something blunt there's gonna be blood um but it's i think it helps to differentiate them and i I think that's why gary did it to differentiate it from just being a better fighter you know i i think um one thing that kind of uh happens in people's games is they try with dungeons and dragons to to cover as much ground as possible and i think dungeons and dragons works best when you respect the archetypes yeah um and that's just a personal play preference of mine um i I, and when i when i say that what i would do with a sword wielding cleric is i would probably run it as an elf as opposed to trying to adjust um the cleric class to suit Hmm. but i think it works best when you stay within the archetypes because uh the archetypes are there to give people their jobs yeah i just had a conversation about this the other day where i think the main difference with classic D &D versus 
because there's racist class and, you know, non-humans outside of the elf are by definition fighters, I think it definitely does work more in archetypes versus versus jobs, sort of what you're doing in the world. And that's a neat thing. Like, I like your idea of, of clerics being monster hunters. I also really like that outside of original D&D, your, the paladin doesn't really exist. If you're just playing basic expert or, or back me D&D, you don't really have the paladin as it exists in later editions. So your cleric can become that holy knight. And so you kind of, your archetypes are still there. Your Your fighter is, or fighting man, is like your Conan or your like Fafford um, or, you know, John, John Carter of Mars kind of. Uh, character, your magic user remains, you know, your Reislin or your, um, that's so inbred to reference D&D literature when going with D&D archetypes, uh, but your Gandalf sure. and your, like, Jack Vance wizard, and your thieves are going to be, like, your, I guess still Conan, but a Thief is its own show that they already did, so let's not get too much into that. You, it, allows you to have another archetype where you can have a paladin or a holy knight or, you know, um, kind of a, a knight in shining armor, like a, a Galahad or a, a King Arthur. Whereas the fighter sure. is more of a swashbuckler. I, I agree. And I think um, uh, one thing I want to point out, paladins did show up in Beckme mm-hmm. um, as a as a uh, the lawful fighter that did not have a keep. Yeah. Uh, once you get to a high enough level to attain lordship, if you if you are a traveling lawful fighter, you can become a paladin. Um, but but Beckme is a is a widespread. Yeah. Um, but but it, it is a different class than it is presented in in AD and D and beyond. Mm-hmm. In that it is not quite a mix uh, uh, per se of the cleric and the fighter as it becomes in, in later versions. There's no casting. Yes. Um, uh, they are, they have some innate abilities, mm-hmm. um, but I think in classic D and D, a fine way to get that archetype is using the cleric and just allowing them use of a sword. Yeah. I don't think it breaks the game, and I think one of the things that works really well in uh, classic D and D is experimentation because it's a hard system to break. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, there's really no such thing as game balance. It's it's an illusion, and that holds true for modern RPGs. I think I think the obsession with game balances it's no one's ever gonna. It's like that Louis C.K. bit um, from from Louis actually, where he tells his daughter, "You're you're never gonna have what someone else has. You don't look in your neighbor's bowl to see if they have more than you. You look and see if if they have enough." And that's something that like I I think original D&D and, and classic D&D really does very well. You know, everyone is is very spread out. There's no skill system. There's no overlap. That's my least favorite thing in later editions is when people pick skills. And I'm, I'm playing an archetype because that's how I think. You know, my brain is wired in kind of classic D&D archetypes. If I'm playing, like, if I'm playing an archery fighter who was a scout in the military... And then we have our rogue, who also, just because they get 85,000 skills, they also chose all the scouty things. It makes me useless outside of combat. Whereas in uh, classic D&D, you know, 
the fighter's always going to be the best at fighting. The wizard is always going to be the worst at fighting. And then, depending on how you set up your character, things that you can do, you know, and things that you want to try, that's, you know, that's going to be based on the narrative. Yeah, and I think um, a class system like you have in, in early Dungeons and Dragons is a skill system. When you when you pick being a cleric, we'll assume your character knows about religion. We'll assume your character knows about um, uh, what to do in a church or how to locate a church or how to talk to a priest. Um, we don't need to have a knowledge religion skill mm -hmm. to dictate that. I definitely agree. Um, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about the paladin uh, as it pertains to classic D anD. I I make this argument all the time for for fifth edition. I don't think the paladin ranger should be a thing. I think that should be done as an archetype of a fighter or an archetype of a cleric. Um, but the paladin in classic D anD. D is a lot different than a cleric who eventually gets a horse as it kind of is and can use a sword in in later editions and i i think that's really interesting that they gave the option um but it's definitely it's a different kind of class you know it's a it's still a fighter and they can lay on hands and they have to do lawful deeds and they they really can't have any any treasure they can have what is it four pieces of magical equipment and then they have to tie yeah. everything. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a Gawain uh, archetype from Arthurian lore that they're really following. Oh my god, uh, with it absolutely is. Lore. You're absolutely correct. Like, that's clicked right into place with that. Uh, so that's another example of, of a character from a, a previous story. Mm -hmm. that people wanted to play in Dungeons and Dragons. And again, with the cleric uh, being a creation of the game, I really think that's one of the most interesting things about the cleric is it was almost built from necessity. There's not really a uh, undead hunting mace wielding heavily armored warrior priest in any fiction uh, that I can think of prior to Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and even but now the healer, every fantasy game has them. Yeah, even the healer in in a lot of fantasy novels was more of a shamanistic. So what I would think of kind of what the druids become, you know, it's yeah, well, and a Tolkien, witch it's the elves and the rangers. Yeah, they're the only ones healing people. Um, uh, so, uh, I and a lot of times healing in, in a lot of older stories. I, I read a lot of old uh, 1800s fantasy and and uh, uh, it's it's a, tied to a place more than, than it's it's tied to a person. Oh, sort of and like an Avalon kind of thing, right? Right, and you see that in Tolkien as well. Um, you know, they stay at uh, Rivendell, they stay at Lothlorien oh. uh, and they get rejuvenated. It's not it's not a person who who uh, who applies the healing uh necessarily now uh, what we do see is more powerful elves like elrond galadriel and then also in the house of healing we see strider apply healing but that's in no way um that we can trace that to now the cleric yeah. who is the healer of dungeons and, Dragons. and i think that's interesting because it, it goes back to what you were saying about it being a 
a creation out of necessity for the game. Sort of what um what that quote from Mike uh was it Mike Morland? Am I getting that right? Monard. Are you going Mike with Monard. Michael Monard? Yeah. What Monard was saying Sorry. is um you know, you had wizards who were artillery, and then you had fighting men, and that was it. There wasn't really any way to heal in battle, so <laughs> the the sort of the old cliche of we need a healer to join our group for the new person coming in, the, the cleric has literally always been that. Yeah, it started as that, like... We, let's create this class because we need it. And now we, you, you tell your friends, that, can you play this? Because we need it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting but, how it's like a snake. But he summarizes it. Uh, uh, Mr. Mornard summarizes it as uh, we made some stuff up because it sounded fun. You know, that yeah. was that was how it was created. It, it helped the game. Yeah. Um, That's, and, um... and it's now, to me, become a a staple of the fantasy world yeah that's how i've always felt with uh, there's a lot of really weird things that became hard-coded in AD&D and its derivatives um like fire like a ring of fire resistance and drowning in lava so you just like it's a surfang thing where you know like at some point a dm put them on a lava bridge fighting orcs and an orc pushed like he pushed Melf over the edge and Melf died. And then next campaign, they found themselves in a similar, you know, a chasm above a lava river again. And he did it that time to the, to the orc. And, you know, that's how they got bull rush rules out of that. And then eventually this DM's just a, you know, hypothetically, he's a, he's a huge fan of lava. He's just lava and all it's accoutrement. He, he's a big fan of it. Um, but this time, Jason's uh, new elf, Melf the Fourth, he found a ring of fire resistance when they fought the baby red dragon two weeks earlier, and then, you know, the orc pushes him off the edge into the lava, and and he goes, "Well, you're dead." But you know, did I say Jason or Jeremy? <laughs> Melf character goes, "Well, no, I have a, I have a, I have a ring of fire resistance." I'm immune to fire. And the DM sits there and he thinks for a second. He goes, yeah, but you can't breathe underwater. So you still drown. And that's why we have 75 pages uh, in you know, the 3.5 manual for why, why you can still drown in lava. <laughs> These sort of rules were built from necessity, from things that came up in the game. Yeah, that's um, – I remember uh, during the, the playtest for 5e where they were at one point going to make dwarves immune to poison as opposed to just uh, getting a bonus. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it created all these kind of um, scenarios that, well, what if the god of poison was going to poison a dwarf? Could the god of poison create a poison that could poison a dwarf, you know? <laughs> And, and and what I I think with OSR and and, and uh, uh, classic Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of those rules aren't stated because when you're at the table, the dungeon master is the author of Dungeons and Dragons yeah. to some extent, and yeah, he it's like... writes the game that you're playing that day. 
Yeah, it's the spirit of the rules, not the letter of the rules that dictates the fun. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Gygax, um, I'm definitely gonna. This lava discussion has definitely brought up. Uh, I'll, I'll leave in the show notes my own personal house rules. I use a product called Fire and Brimstone. Um, it's a revolutionary RPG document. I'll leave a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> Um, so we've talked about how we sort of can run clerics. Let's actually kind of talk about what clerics can do, um, as opposed to, you know, the, the history of them here. Um, let's go, I'm going to get over to original D&D here from, um, booklet one, Men and Magic, um, they're kind of, you know, they, they eventually did become that heavily armored healing tank, I suppose. Where I think what's interesting about uh, the way they presented in Men and Magic is they're, they're kind of presented as the middle ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both fighters and casters. Um, uh, because the, the original description says they gained some of the advantages from both of the other two classes. Mm-hmm. So when you present that way, you see them as we have wizards, we have fighters, and this is the in-between. This is the middle of the road uh, option for people who want a little bit of both. Yeah, and there was that in, in original D&D, there's, you know, what kind of magic armor and what kind of magic weapons was a big thing for Gary, um, just kind of extrapolating sort of what, what he did with AD&D and you know, what what magic equipment you could use. Um, you know, they can use they can use all the magic armors and all non-edged magic weapons, whereas, you know, a, a, a fighter, you know, could use all those things, but a, a magic user couldn't. So you get... If you're going with the original rules and you're still... If you're not using variable weapon die, like... That's not really a drawback, in my opinion. If you get all of the same magical That's one of those things that depends, you know, at what table you're at. Because there's no reason why a dungeon master can't create in his game a magical mace that's just as powerful as any magical sword. Yeah. Uh, Even if the book doesn't present the option, you know, the swords are a little bit more powerful in the book than the, 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 the magical blunt weapons. Mm -hmm. But when you're sitting at the game, creating it, no, it it doesn't, it doesn't really limit you, the dungeon master from creating whatever weapon you want for whatever character. And I think that's one of the, you know, we talked a little bit about balance. One of the ways that the game is actually balanced is by a, a skilled DM's reaction to the characters and their circumstances. Yeah, there's that whole sort of almost like the tone poem of classic D&D where you're, you're not really going so much for the rules so much as the feel. And I think that's, like, from what we've talked before the show with, like, DMX, I think we're both kind of, we're pretty fast and loose. Like, I had said, I was like, yo, you want a wizard with a sword? All right, cool, whatever, like, sure. Um, that's fantasy enough. And I think that's, we're not doing things like a point buy for stats, you know? You're not creating a character for organized play. And <laughs> organized play rules eventually came out of that being a necessity, uh, because you would have one DM who would be like, everybody gets 
15 magic items. You you want a plus 17 mace of uh dragon destruction? Sure, it's cool. Um you want to you want to be a big big bad I almost said beetle pork. <laughs> You want That's to be, fine. You could be a big bad beetleborg at my yeah, table. Yeah. Let's throw them up. Yeah, I mean your your mentor's a ghost. Whatever, it's fine, you know? Um <laughs> Actually I think the cleric would be the best way to make a big bad beetleborg. Because they're heavily armored, you know. Um they deal with the undead a whole bunch. Anyone That's over fair. the age of of thirty has no idea what I'm talking about. I'll leave it in the That's show it. notes. That's it. That's an unfortunate thing. <laughs> I think even a lot of people under the age of 30 are, are possibly uh, missing the reference. It's, it's, it's not uh, completely obscure, but it's fairly obscure. Only people between the ages of 23 and 32 know what I'm talking about. We've got a, we've got a right. good nine year, nine year listener. Uh, demographic there that are gonna understand <laughs> gonna understand Heim Sabom's big bad beetleborgs. Um jeez. You know, I need a second to recover from that. If you want to make uh you know the big bad tank, you know, sure I'll I'll help you do that. Whereas another DM was running like a just a fight for survival where you're dropped off in a cave and left for dead and now you've wound your way through this subterranean catacomb you know, killing monsters with your bare hands and taking, uh, like rough shot equipment and and arming yourself that way and fighting your way th- through the surface through a bizarre underground land, and then guy A from the first game goes to the second game and he's like, oh yeah, no, I have I have a lightsaber. It was given to me. Uh, sure. you know, I I got that at fifth level. Also, I'm level thirty six already. Game's only been out for a year and a half. Well, I mean that's that's certainly uh, part of the encoding of of classic D and D, where it's a little bit looser. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when we look at the history of why Advanced was created, a lot of it was to curtail some of that from happening. Yeah. To kind of have a more coded structure to the game that you could use among a large. Uh, player base and still have similar characters with similar experiences yeah. uh, have it all be in one book and all um uh it's in three books but what i mean is um it's it's not uh spread over you know at that point only three years of supplements but um you know when they started creating a, a advanced uh yeah it, it had already become a problem yeah, yeah, having a tournament play, and even from there, they then had to further create the RPGA, and, and sort of today, you know, we have pretty strict, not tournament rules, because that's not a thing anymore, but there's definitely a strict organized play, um, like, archetype that you, or not archetype, but there, there are rules that you have to follow, you know, now they're doing a, a player's handbook plus one supplement for character creation, so people don't get out of hand. Um, I want to actually talk about real quick, where do you think Turn Undead came from? Because we've kind of gone through this whole thing and we haven't really talked I about I think when this. you watch a lot of those old um, 60s, 70s uh, horror horror films, I'm, I'm a fan. Um, there's a lot of times where 
uh, I think the classic example is the vampire and the cross. You raise up your whole holy symbol and and you rebuke the vampire or its servants. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's where the idea comes from. I think it is a Van Helsing trope and and, and nowhere else. Um, uh, there's a old movie that I suggest everybody watch called Horror Rises from the Grave. Um, and it's one of one of the finer bad B movies of yesteryear <laughs> um, where these warlocks uh, were beheaded and then brought back to life in, in the modern uh, times that the movie represents. Um, but they have undead servants and they they are they are driven out uh, uh, by fire or holy symbols. And it, it looks so much like what you imagine a Dungeons and Dragons turn undead effect to look like they're kind of recoiling um and backing away and and to me you know i think that's where the concept has its birth okay is those old hammer horror films and movies like it for me it's because i i you know i i maybe have seen one christopher lee vampire movie not very many but because i am a dirty millennial uh to me there's this weird anime like it it goes to things like Vampire Hunter D or um like Buffy the Vampire Slayer where there's like Well I think Go ahead. I think we're talking about children of the same dad. Um, <laughs> children of the same dad. <laughs> and what I mean is, you know, D D's inspiration and Buffy's inspiration and and Vampire Hunter D's inspiration for that idea all goes back to you know a long enough timeline to the the uh, hammer horror films mm-hmm. representation of how to, how they rebuked undead but then if we trace it back further than that it goes to bram stoker and then before bram stoker there's a novel called vampire which is just v-a-m-p-y-r yeah uh, thought to be the first um vampire novel uh and I, I i believe that's correct i could have that spelling wrong Okay, I'm almost positive you're right with that. I think that is the I I know of that movie, um, and I definitely or not movie that book, and I I definitely think that is the right spelling. Um, yeah, I guess for me it's sort of like, you know, there's just anime lasers involved when you're doing destroy undead. Um, oh sure, a lot of whooshing effects in my head. That's that's how I just process it. Um. It's interesting because at a certain point, the cleric does become powerful enough to just destroy undead entirely. At fourth level, a skeleton is it's nothing to you. You know, you you roll. Yeah, a that's dice. Uh, at some point, and really not that far away. Uh, <laughs> you know, at fourth level, you're 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 just destroying them outright. Um, uh, and so that's that is. That is true that I don't know of a um, of a literary example of that happening. I know I know of literary and and film examples of of turning undead, mm-hmm. but the idea of them just just uh, uh, being destroyed outright by a holy symbol, I, I can't think of one. Um, you know that that predates D and D. I definitely think turning and at least destroying undead definitely came more in with the cleric becoming powered by a a source from above a a a divine 
power. I think turning was probably what they were doing with um in the playtest in Artisan's game when it was, you know, when they were fighting Sir Fang and his undead minions. But I definitely think, you know, holding out your holy system, uh, symbol and a beam of light shooting through, you know, the the center of a skeleton and it exploding into dust definitely comes from, I think, them becoming holy knights. Um, and that's the thing with, like, destroying undead, you know, again, I go back to things like Buffy, um, where you, you stake, you know, you, you stake, uh, Paul Rubens through the heart, and, uh, he should explode, but he doesn't, you know, but all the other ones that you've staked, they crumble to dust. Paul Rubens is just a little too, he's got too many hit dice to be destroyed by, uh, Chris. He's a, he's a higher level vampire. Yeah, he's a higher level, so he, you know, it hurts him. Ah, ooh, ee, ooh, ah, but it doesn't quite kill him off. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> I, the, the, go ahead. <laughs> I think that's um, uh, the, the way that 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 looks. Me, I think of destroy undead as 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 almost like fire enveloped and more more um oh yeah definitely uh, traditional vampire in sunlight mm-hmm. uh you know type of thing where they kind of crumble uh, you know with with uh you know buffy for example that was that was a narrative driven thing where um the vampires had to turn to dust because uh it just it just got rid of a lot of red tape for them to deal with yeah um, I definitely think uh, them uh, being enveloped in flames and, and, you know, being destroyed that way is a great visual representation. I wanted to bring this up real quick because I'm looking at the table in OD&D. Um, sure. <laughs> so having the roots as a as a vampire hunter, um, vampires in the original Three Little Brown books cannot be destroyed. You, they're even, you know, once you reach, what is this, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, once you reach sixth level, that's when you can actually start turning a vampire, but it's real hard. You have to roll an 11 <laughs> on 2d6. Right. Um, so the cleric isn't even that good at what it was originally supposed to be doing. So you mean on their, on their turn undead um, roll? Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't ever have the option at the levels presented in, in uh, OD and D. Yeah, they they cannot destroy a vampire, um, and they're not even particularly good at turning them. To be honest. So another uh, interesting thing in going to the Vampire Slayer in OD and D, uh, the Monsters and Treasures supplement, where we talk about vampires, mm-hmm. uh, they are they are killed if exposed to direct rays of sunlight, immersed in running water, impaled to the heart with a wooden stake. Um, otherwise, uh, they're only hit by magic weapons like specters. Um, hmm. And I guess, because um, I'm I'm also, the reason I brought that up is I'm, I'm working my way in the original rules. version to, it, yeah, to get to Traditional ways of killing vampires. Sunlight, immersed in running water, mm-hmm. impelled to the heart with a wooden stake. Uh, uh, you know, these are um, carryovers from folklore and also from, from horror movies. A lot of that uh, stuff actually is is just from contemporary literature. Um, I actually, I'll try to find it. I read a very large blog post recently about um, 
vampires in fiction and sort of the things like running water and and staking through the hearts and things like that and how in actual folklore in in you know human real world folklore um a lot of that stuff is is not there you know uh, and a lot of where it comes from is it's from other things that people kind of just extrapolate well yeah they did this and i guess that would work for vampires as well it's actually really interesting um things like sunlight and vampires um like garlic and things like that um even staking them wouldn't kill them it would just incapacitate them until it was removed yeah the thing i've always heard is the the staking through the heart uh comes from uh nailing corpses to the ground during their burial so oh. they couldn't come back i don't know how true that is um another thing i've heard about uh vampirism is that in in folklore it it could be anything um that you feel weaker or or are affected by so like literally like your bread could be vampiric and you throw it out because you're like ah this bread's draining me um so you know that that brings us to a lot of options for dungeons and dragons play vampiric bread and you know vampiric stools (laughs) yeah i'm going to um kind of look at sort of the things their spell list i think um can kind of give us a little bit of insight with the play test and what they eventually became through like um the find traps spell that's something that i don't really associate with a a holy warrior or a priest i think that would be more you know van helsing going into dracula's castle or where he's keeping his coffin in london and of necessity like they just make it a little easier on you in the dungeon mm-hmm. because uh, the terms we use now in, in in a lot of modern RPGs is support class, yeah, um, and that may that may go back uh, further than I'm giving it credit for. Make life easier uh, for a lot of people, so that find traps because there was no other mechanical ar- alternative to that other than poking things with a ten foot pole and and hoping you come out all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so it may I don't I don't recall seeing that in in. Uh, in anything but classic D and D spell list, I don't I don't recall seeing it in in more modern games. I would have to look, um, and you know maybe I'll do like an edit as an addendum. Um, one thing that uh, a third level, uh, not third level, a fifth level cleric does get um, is the ability to cast um, continual light, which is equal to full daylight. So they are a little better equipped to kill a vampire off you know, without turning it or without destroying undead a little bit earlier than they can actually turn a vampire. So they can make a, they can do continual light while they're fighting the vampire and just kill it. Just destroy it through, you know, the means as you would in just regular folklore. Okay. Yeah, that is interesting. So, um, it's a it's a thing with with old school gaming and it's it's a thing that i um sometimes have a trouble doing uh where you where you throw away a a harder uh creature at a lower level party and kind of expect them to find a way to solve it you know it's a problem to solve mm-hmm. um uh so uh y- you know it's it's not something I, I think every uh, dungeon master would allow, um, uh, 
you know, whether the light shed being equal to full daylight makes it the same as daylight uh, might throw that out. And I think there's um, uh, some that would certainly allow it. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, because it, it it lets them fight that stronger creature. You know, even if it, you don't have it destroy the vampire, if the vampire, you know, it gives them a break. They can, if your cleric was smart enough to cast continual or to prepare continual light for that day, you know, I, I would say let them have it. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting looking at the cleric spell list in the original game is they don't have, you know, they have things like create food and commune and raise dead, but they don't have stuff like, you know, meteor swarm or um, the spell that lets you cast down uh, <laughs> a pillar of flame from the sky. You do get sticks to snakes, which is my favorite D&D spell of all time, and you know, Mike Merles, if you're listening, please put sticks to snakes in fifth edition. Please, Mike Merles, why won't you answer my emails anymore? Um, which is, you know, of course, the based off of Moses. Um, sure. And a lot of their spells, you know, they're definitely he had he had a he had a weaker version. Stick, stick to snake. To snake. <laughs> yes, he absolutely did. It's a lower <laughs> level. Yeah, because Sticks to Snakes is a fourth level spell in original D anD D. So you know yeah. that's a lot of that's a lot of snakes. That's you know two to six. Moses had snakes. to use Moses had to use all of his spell slots on Parn Waters. He didn't have enough room, except for one stick, one snake. Yeah. Um, and so the cleric is definitely in in at least the original game. I'm not sure if it's the same in like. Back me D and D, definitely more of the defensive, kind of like you had said earlier, the utility character. You know, protection from evil, speak with plants, create water, um, neutralize poison, dispel evil, uh, create food. You're definitely more of a support character. I think it's it's a it's an idea that follows the cleric through all of classic D and D, all the way through Beck me into the rule cyclopedia. Uh, the cleric being um, uh, kind of this this mechanic in class form um, uh, is one of the things I think that defines uh, 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 classic D and D and old school D and D, and that the clerics exist because they help make the gun the game run better and and more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think in a lot of modern versions where they they spread that a little thin, um, that kind of the motifs um, we see a lot of those abilities represent in other classes, uh, and and you see that across the board in modern RPGs where where the the Thief has a job, but he also uh, possibly has the same job as two other characters in your group because they've they've added a skill system or they've uh, uh, tweaked some things to allow the thief to operate a little bit differently and let other uh, characters operate as a thief. Um, where in classic D anD D, the the thief to me. Um, and the cleric and the fighter and 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 the magic user they all have a job and it's 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 a mechanics driven job mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's kind of how what I was touching upon earlier when I was, you know, I, I don't think that. I, I wish in 5th edition, not to make this a 5th edition show, because it absolutely isn't, um, just kind of touching upon it, I don't think that the Paladin and the Ranger are necessary as their own classes. I think they can be archetypes, um, kind of, you know, like your Battlemaster or your Eldritch Knight. Um, I, I don't think that they're... Because it's become so mechanic-based in, in later editions... I don't think that you need to have um, these as an archetype. I I, I, or I don't know what I'm trying to say here. I guess I'm... No, I get what you're saying. So um, essentially it's, it's two sides of the same coin where uh, you can either have an archetype for all of these options mm -hmm. or you can tack on a skill system and, and allow the archetypes in a... a wider spread but what they've done with modern games is they've done both they have all the archetypes and all the archetypes are kind of weakened with a skill system and kind of lessened as an archetype to where your fighters kind of already covering stuff you would imagine from a paladin yeah um and you're so that's exactly it, actually. And we uh, on Critical Wits, we uh, we did a whole episode about this uh, classes, career archetypes. I believe it's episode twelve. You should go give that one a listen. <laughs> Just gonna plug my own stuff a little bit here. Um, hey, you, you, you plug your show on your show. That's what you do. Yeah, I'm trying to find uh, at least in the original edition the higher level spells for clerics. I am failing at doing that. I don't know which book they're in. Uh, yeah, I assume you would need to go to Greyhawk first and it might look be there. Greyhawk, yeah. While I'm doing that, can you look through if you have like your rule cyclopedia? Can you kind of look at things what clerics can do past, you know, fifth level spells or fifth level spells and above? Oh sure. Because I think that's um, when they start getting to the stuff where they can literally bring down the wrath of God. Yeah, I, I remember uh, uh, the the scariest spell for a, a cleric or possibly any character to have uh, was Creeping Doom. That's my uh, second favorite OD, like original D&D spell. Also, uh, which very is good just blog. a swarm of... of, of uh, terrible insects coming at you uh at a slow pace yeah um, uh, but it's still it's still uh, one that that i remember fondly and i believe it it exists in the rule cyclopedia but i'm having trouble locating it. i believe it does i think i have the rule cyclopedia text more or less memorized for creeping doom where you summon i think it's like 250 yeah it, it's like actually centipedes. a druid spill mm-hmm and I'm each not... one does one point of damage. Yeah, it's just a druid spell. It's not a cleric spell. So okay. backtrack on that. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the cleric. I think so in certain druids, versions it is. Druids are, druids are similar to clerics in a <laughs> yeah. lot of ways, and they are actually a... That's, yeah, that's a whole uh, other show, like the druid, because... The druid was just a specialized form of cleric. It was just them going like, "Hey, right. like here's how you can specialize on archetype." 
Um, and that's how it's presented in the rule cyclopedia as well. Yeah. Oh man, I can't I can't find higher level spells. Um I am trying to look for it. Um here we go. Um so uh looking at the rule cyclopedia here, uh sixth level clerical uh sixth level clerical spells. Uh we see cure all. I remember that being a, a huge boon. Um it's the most powerful of the healing spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when used to cure wounds, it cures nearly all damage, leaving the recipient with only 1d6 points of damage. So that's interesting because it reverses the effect of a cure spell. Instead of curing a, a number of points, it cures everything but a number of points. Oh, that is interesting. Um, uh, so we go to 7th level, and now we're really seeing them kind of shape the world around them. 7th mm-hmm. level cleric spells include Earthquake. Uh, raise dead fully uh, travel um allows aerial or gases form travel uh and wish now that's a powerful spell <laughs> that is a powerful spell that's the most powerful spell really yeah and that's as high as it goes uh, in the rule cyclopedia seventh level okay yeah i just found what i was looking for here um for clerics, here we go. Yeah, in in clerics, you know, they get a couple of new options in Greyhawk. They get silence, um, which interesting enough, silence not so much. I at least in JRPGs, it's used as a way to stop magic users from casting, and that sort of became a thing in in later editions as well. But it's really for stealth because you can cast silence right. on yourself and your party. And move with no sound, so you can sneak up on, you know, everyone. Um, you get things like Snake Charm, which, sure, okay. Um, and then you, you start getting things like, you know, Blade Barrier or Word of Recall or, um, yeah, Earthquake, Aerial Servant, Wind Walk. Which, you know, turns you into Son Goku from Dragon Ball. Um, just kind of. I mean, jump. I want to turn to Sun Goku. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to go Super forward. Saiyan. Let's look here through our notes. Let's kind of touch on things. Is there anything we missed in here yet? Oh, uh, demi-human clerics. That is something that we had talked about earlier. Um, personally, for me, like I know with with the supplements, you could get half elven clerics and, and dwarven clerics and things like that. For me, it's I it's. Know, I, uh, the the only dwarven cleric I know of is from uh, the Gazetteer series. Okay. Uh, uh, the the Rockholm Gazetteer. Mm. Um, I don't believe uh, it ever came up as an option in OD and I could be wrong. Um, uh, the only mention I, I I know of in OD and D anything but a human being a cleric uh, is the half elf. Um, now I I think what's interesting about that is is OD and D uh, uh, you know, by its nature, wasn't race as class. Mm-hmm. You know, there were options for dwarven thieves and halfling thieves, as well as dwarven fighters and halfling fighters. Um, uh, but when we, when we, uh, when Holmes edited it down, he presented it uh, almost as race as class. So it wasn't really until um, Moldvay, because in Holmes we have mention of of dwarves 
are fighters unless they're thieves and mm -hmm. hobbits are fighters unless they're thieves. So it wasn't until 1981, Moldvay Cook, where we get that distinct separation of, of, of this is separate. This race is this character every yeah. time. Um, uh, 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 race is class. Class is race. We don't need two terms. We don't need to think of them as two separate things. Yeah, it's my preferred play style. I prefer race as class. I'm but the with the boat. cleric, I see we, uh, I see some of the roots of the cleric being a particularly human thing, um, uh, as opposed to other classes like wizards and thieves and fighters, which which all have have racial variants. Yeah, for me, uh, just for like my worldview of, of a of a classic D and D world, it's really it's dwarves and humans. Um, I had a, a conversation about about racist class with some friends who I play in a fifth edition game with, and they didn't understand the elf and why elf. Like, I guess they played in a game where there were no elf clerics, like a modern game where somebody was like, "Yeah, elves can't be priests," and they didn't understand that. And for me, it kind of it goes back to the liter literary roots, you know, with with Tolkien. There aren't. I mean, there are elven gods, but. In Tolkien, elves are immortal. They don't need a deity if they if and they know their gods are real. And but if you die, you just come back. You just you're reincarnated. Um, and so <laughs> the elven deity is really interesting. Elves as a race because they're based on Tolkien elves, but they're also based on the Norse elves, which are just like right. also otherworldly god beings right they were they were hanging out with the gods yeah they were like they were buddies uh, elves with gods. and dwarves you know they were just up there they were they were part of the whole uh ecosphere yeah uh that were, were not midgard mm -hmm. um uh so yeah i i agree i think i think uh it's telling that with with uh even classic dnd where it wasn't really separated um uh, uh, race and class were, were were both options, and 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 races could be more more than one class. Yeah, um, it wasn't really structured the way that we think of of Red Box and and Moldvay Cook mm -hmm. D and D. Now humans were still uh, the only ones really given the option of clerics, and and half elves when they're they're mentioned as an option for cleric, um, it's a it's as a fighter magic user cleric and it mentions them kind of uh, leading into their human background to, to gain that option and so when we were doing why i like that why i like um clerics being a human option and it not being uh elven clerics or or uh, uh dwarven clerics is it is it lets the humans have a personality Mm -hmm. that um the elves may have a different structure and the dwarves may have a different structure for their environment, their yeah. cities may be structured differently. And if you if, go with the Seelie and Unseelie court, sort of because elves are a weird grab bag in, in classic D&D, &D, um, right. you know, if you go with like Irish folklore or Celtic folklore, the most powerful elf was you made that guy king. You know, like Oberon, he wasn't the god of the elves. He was just the most powerful one. So you, you make that dude the guy in charge. He had the pointiest shoes. So. <laughs> he did. Yeah, and that I, I kind of use that as an example. Like, no, like, in elven society, like, 
the dude who's the most powerful, the one guy who can, like, turn anyone into a frog or summon meteors from from the sky, you know, like, you, because you're so long-lived, like, that dude's the same age as you. You you and Obi, you were in third grade together. You played on the same t-ball team, you know, and maybe maybe your elvish mother, you know, maybe she, uh, she braids you for that. You know, she's like, oh, Oberon can, you know, disappear as a whisper on the wind, but, you know, I, how's your flute business going, you know? It's, it, it, you know, it is unfortunate, those elvish mothers. Yeah, their you know, standards. <laughs> it's, you know, Ma, like... <laughs> This is getting a little racist. I don't want to go. I don't, this is getting yeah, semi-anti-Semitic. Are my life, mom. <laughs> uh, yeah, but like, and, and that's the thing. Like, um, that I, I really like about there not being elvish clerics because you're not just a dude with pointy ears. You know, having elves all be one archetype as an adventure, the elvish adventurer. You know, you you you're a fighter magic user blend and you can't be a cleric. I, I like that because your whole worldview would be different. And they talked about that on on the, you know, last class act as elves where, you know, your 30 years to you would be as long as as two weeks to a human. So you're you have a, a completely different alien outlook and maybe you revere nature spirits and that kind of gets into like well i think that's an important thing to, to touch upon uh the the absence of of a uh a cleric choice for for demi-humans doesn't mean there's an absence of of a religious structure for demi-humans yeah maybe you um, revere nature it's spirits. just the cleric class in and of itself and one of the reasons why i like to present them primarily as undead hunters is it is it codifies them in a way uh that's communicable uh, because I think where the cleric gets really into gray areas is is when people start going down the path of why well, I want to be a, a cleric of the god of war. I'm the cleric of Ares. Shouldn't I have a sword? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm okay with that. But if I if I uh, codify the cleric as an undead hunter, then I, I can. I can use that to say, sure, you can be a worshiper of Ares, but as a cleric, your first job is to destroy undead. And what that means is it lets me have a world that has whatever um, uh, pantheon I want to add to it, whether it be including elven and dwarven gods or not, but it still defines what the cleric does based on um, something other than just their religious beliefs. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just I'm like thinking about like elvish clerics and it's sort of like maybe one way you could justify it in your world because they have such an alien outlook, you know, you they have that resistance to the paralysis of ghouls and things like that, like fighting undead and like things that are aberrant in in nature, you know, like a zombie or a ghoul or a white. That's just part of Maybe that's just part of being an elf. Maybe that's something that the elvish adventurer archetype is setting out into the world to do. But it's not for religious reasons. It's just, you know, he's trying to protect the the, the natural order of the world. And 
That's the whole thing with, like, do clerics get their powers from a god or do they get them from a belief? Because now the the line's getting a little muddy for me. Like, it's... I'm not sure if... I think for the sake I, of I archetype... I think that's a table-to-table table thing. Um, yeah. Uh, Sub-tables uh, have very large, intricate backstories to their world, and, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, some tables have a lot of hand-waving and shrugging, and, and, it, and it goes from there. Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't know. I'm doing that thing that I, I do often where I, like, look for answers but only come up with more questions now. <laughs> uh, so is there anything else? And, and that's the thing. I, I think um, just for archetype's sake, um, within the structure of classic d and I, I think that clerics should only be human. I think humans should be the only ones who worship in that capacity and are the only ones potentially who will take up arms to emulate their god. Because, you know, an elf, like I said, Oberon's just some dude that you went to high school with who one day, you know, learned that he could he could call lightning from the sky, but he's not any more or less elf-like than you. He just is more powerful. Um, whereas uh, I think with humans, there's a tangible, I am getting this strength from somewhere else. I'm getting it from either an ideal or I'm getting it, from, you know, embodying those ideals or I'm getting it from, you know, a god with a little g or in the instance of of Holmes D&D, god with a big g. Well, Holmes D&D, uh, uh, leaves it pretty open for for interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Holmes, basic, they've dated themselves to one or more of the gods. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, it's really it's really only O D and D where you see kind of allusions to uh, uh, Judeo Christian uh, 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 religion. Um, but uh, you know, I think that's. Uh, uh, one of the things that's that that I like about racist classes it does separate it. Elves, by nature, are magic, mm -hmm. and uh, humans are not. Um, but there are ways for them to also employ those abilities, um, yeah. uh, whether it be through study uh, or or be through um, appealing to a higher power, whatever that higher power may be. Um, uh, so, you know, I think, I think that kind of, uh, brings us back, uh, we're, we're kind of agreeing here that we, we like it, uh, uh, being that clerics are, are kind of a human entity because it, it does, it's just one more thing that separates the idea of demi-humans from humans. Yeah, because um, it, it should ultimately be a humanocentric game. I think, I think Gary nailed that when, uh, in his original design for the game. Um, um. My problem with it is uh, when when it becomes a question of of elves are clerics, wizards, fighters, thieves, whatever you want to choose. Uh, same with dwarfs, same with halflings. Um, is it it creates a world where every civilization is essentially 
medieval human civilization. Yeah. You know, there's elven cities with elven thieves and an elven wizard. Over, I mean, it, it, it creates this kind of mirror image of, of the, the human world in your fantasy campaign being very similar to the dwarven world and very similar to the elven world, um, where if they are separate and all elves have these magical abilities and dwarves by nature are, are warrior people, um, uh, it, it creates a different culture. And your, your human culture is what you approximate as uh, this fantasy uh, uh, medieval world. And, and that can be anything at any table. Um, uh, uh, the, the dwarf culture doesn't mirror that exactly. And the yeah. other thing that's good about it is it keeps that from being a mechanical choice. Well, I want to be a wizard, so I'll be an elf because the elf gets these bonuses. Or I want to be a fighter, so I'll be a dwarf because the dwarf gets these bonuses. And it questions, do you want to be a dwarf? Do you want to be an elf? If you don't, then play something else. It's not a mechanical choice. You don't have to fill back into this uh, uh, choice because the mechanics suit your stat roles and the mechanics suit your idea for how you're going to gain power for your character. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that's the beauty of the simplicity of classic D&D. You know, your your numbers are low. The things that your class does are very much separated from one another. And if you want to fill this role, if you want to play this archetype, you choose, you know, a dwarf. If you if you're wanting to play a dwarf and not just a fighter who can only go up to eighth level, then you choose a dwarf. If you want to be, you know, a graceful warrior who plans magic and uh, swordcraft. You be an an elf. If you want to be a holy knight, you you could be a cleric. If you want to be Conan the Barbarian, you could be a thief or a fighter, depending on you know which version of D and D uh, your DM's running. If you're running, you know something that has the uh, the thief in it, you know, then you would do one thing or the other. Um, and I I really like that. I I like the sticking to the archetypes. Um, I don't know. Like, do we have, do we have anything else? I think we, I think we've covered uh, I, most of our notes. I do. Here. Uh, uh, one thing I want to say is, uh, we have talked a lot about, um, uh, what, what are clearly our, our preferences at the table. Uh, but, um, I know we both probably feel strongly about this. There is no wrong, bad fun. Yeah. Uh, uh, uh everything's everything. Uh, uh, if you're, if, if whatever system you're running, whatever game you're playing, if you're sitting down the table and having fun with your friends, uh, you know, uh, I'm not judging your game at all. Um, oh, absolutely. The, the one thing we haven't talked about yet that I do think is worth mentioning because we are talking about clerics mm -hmm. is wisdom um, and how wisdom ties into, into clerics. Yeah. So it is their prime requisite. Uh, you know, you you get an experience point bonus for being wise, and I want I want you to take the lead on this because I you've brought this up and and I'm I have ideas for where this is going, but I'm really interested in actually seeing like what your idea well, for this is. It, to me, I think it um, you know uh, 
we we've seen um, through the history of D and D a couple of uh, 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 pre-publication uh, character sheets that have more stats on them. You know, so I think things were narrowed down, um, and I, I think uh, 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 wisdom got placed on on clerics. Uh, but there's not a lot in OD and D of an explanation of what wisdom is or does. Uh, you know, that explanation of the stats is really in OD and D how they apply to the class. Wisdom is the prime requisite for clerics. That's what the description says. Um, I mean, that's explanation explanation of the abilities in OD and D. When they get to wisdom, they say it's the prime requisite for clerics. It may be. I mean, it's just it just says the numbers of what it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting to that section right now as well. Uh, you know, uh, the only thing they really do is kind of compare it to an intelligence in a way. Um, the way I remember explaining it so so often uh, when I was playing D and D back in the day uh, was wisdom is sort of your common sense. And intelligence measures your book smarts. But I don't know exactly how that applies to, to clerics or where I got that idea of that description from, if it was ever described that way in a book or not. Um, but I always remember thinking it in those terms. Yeah. Um, um, and then uh, eventually wisdom became associated with your your ability to perceive the world around you, your how in touch you were with your surroundings. And I think that's really interesting for the class that has to deal with the unseen things of the world, the, you know, your your holy spirits and and gods and and natural forces of the world, things that you you can't see but can perceive. That that's really um, uh, uh, where I go with it as well, especially in, in a lot of modern systems. I'm a big fan of Castles and Crusades. I think Castles and Crusades is a fantastic game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the carryovers it has uh, from a modern RPG is the idea of wisdom as perception. Yeah. Um, and and clerics being a wisdom based class, uh, it it puts them in in a weird position of of being the the most perceptive classes. But when you think of clerics again as undead fighters first, it really makes sense that they would be very perceptive because uh, way back in, in early D&D, uh, one of the rules was uh, listening at the door, you may not hear the skeleton or the, or the zombie because they don't make any noise. Mm-hmm. So um, requiring that extra perception to to battle the undead uh, and, and, and the way you put it was beautiful about perceiving these things that don't really exist naturally in the world. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, to to allow those in your games where where you have uh, perception based wisdom. Yeah, definitely the class that is meant to fight ghosts having a stat that would kind of correlate to ESP. I think is I don't think it was purposeful. I think it's an a bit of accidental genius. <laughs> because in the original game, you know, you you didn't have a perception check kind of score. Um, it, there, yeah, there isn't exist. a stat for perception uh, in any version of D&D. Um, yeah. In the original game, that was all handled um, uh, with separate rules for surprise and listening. And uh, uh, I think uh, I have a, a controversial opinion that the, the game could benefit from a perception stat. Um, 
Uh, I don't know how, how many people, if anybody, agrees with that. But me, I, actually, uh, I, I, uh, I've definitely looked into house ruling with with my group having a seventh stat, which is just perception, and have it being divorced from any kind of skill system. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of skill system, so that's why I want it there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I'm going to Moldve now uh, with wisdom because it's the first place in the classic D and D library that I see wisdom more defined than just uh, by the the properties of the class it benefits, and it says the word wisdom refers to inspiration, intuition, common sense, and shrewdness. So I guess that's where I saw that common sense okay. uh, uh, idea. Um, wisdom aids in solving problems when intelligence is not enough. Um, and then it goes on to how it aids clerks. So definitely so goes in. I, I, I guess I King Solomon the Wise. Say again. Oh, it definitely ties in with King Solomon the Wise. Yeah, I mean, when I think of someone who's wise, I think of it as somebody who will cut a baby right in half. Uh, that's. <laughs> My go-to. I go, he wasn't going to cut the baby so in wise. half. He was just saying that because he's like, yeah, if, the, if it's the real mom, of course she doesn't want half a baby. But, I mean, the other person's a psychopath then by those standards. <laughs> I mean, anybody yeah. at that point would be like, jeez, dude, okay. Yeah, that was the whole test because that Back person up. didn't get the baby. <laughs> it's definitely, it's sort of like. King Solomon's the kind of guy who would definitely like if his girlfriend says she's not hungry, he would get a side of fries because he knows that she's gonna steal some of his. That's true. She's gonna eat your fries. <laughs> Be wise, because she's gonna eat your fries. If it rhymes, that's true. It's. I mean, that's how I measure truth. Yeah, that's same. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think. I think that should wrap us up. We're coming up here on uh, uh, quite a bit. Yeah, I think we've uh, we filled our requisite half an hour and then some. Um, yeah, but I think this is great. I think we definitely discussed a lot of things and uh, you know said words a whole bunch of times. Um, yeah, uh, uh, I'm just uh, gracious for the opportunity. I've been a fan of the show uh for for years now and i mean i'm i'm a nobody off the street and and just to have the chance hopefully uh it's been informative and entertaining uh, i have a great respect for this show uh in all of its past voltron forms and hopefully this <laughs> voltron form is successful yeah and i'm glad to be back uh i've been out of the the osr game for a little while so i'm i'm really excited to kind of go through and explore these routes again um, and with that, you know, I, I think we're going to say goodnight. We do have one final announcement. Um, you know, sadly, you know, Carl, we've had, we've had a really good run on the show. It's, you know, it's so been great. it's been a good run. So many minutes that we filled, you know, uh, just over the day. And, uh, but sadly, this is going to be our, this is going to be our last time doing the show. Um, yeah. yeah. Save or die isn't going to yeah, end. It's, it's, we can't make a highlight real, but we could make a highlight real. Yeah, I'll so definitely, I'll I'll edit something together, you know, kind of a, a best of this episode. Um, and I just want to thank everyone, you know, Vince, thank you for the opportunity to to run the show. 
And, you know, Carl, it was, it was great getting to know you. I, I feel like, you know, I, I, we had lightning in a bottle, but you know, we, we just couldn't keep it forever. It's sad, you know, you know, like after all this time that we put in on this one episode for us to end it, you know, it just it seems like it's too soon. It seems it like seems we could have had more premature. time. A little bit. Yeah. But with that, you know, I just want to thank all the listeners of the Saber Die Nation. <laughs> um, again, you know, uh, I just want to let you know a couple things here. Uh, if you have any if you want to write in, you can write us in at questions at saberdie.info. Don't forget to check out our Patreon if you are a fan of the show and want to support us. And, uh, you know, like our Facebook page. Follow us on osrgaming.org, Dragon's Foot, um, D20 Radio, uh, reddit.com slash saverdie. Um, I have a, I have a Usenet forum that I went back in time and started Just lots of different places where you can reach us. Find and... me on Friendster. <laughs> Friendster. <laughs> you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, but I think that'll be our show for this week. tell you something brother the saber die podcast immortal edition is a production of wild games productions brother it is produced for entertainment purposes only jack all other uses are prohibited dude so be sure to visit them at saberdie.info for more information brother what you gonna do when the saber die podcast runs wild on you Ooh.